Ashley Banfield here, and this is Rising Tide, the place where I bring some of the greatest mentor minds to you. If you care about your craft and you want to be better at what you do, I want to help you with that. You know, it's easy to assume that you need an Ivy League education to really make it big. But each month, I feature VIP mentors who are leaders in their industry, and they say, that's not true. They're going to prove to you that you don't have to have highbrow connections to create your own personal best. And they've agreed to share their tips, their secrets, and their career advice with you. This is Rising Tide. Bob freaking Costas is like one of the finest people alive. Honestly, Bob, when you popped up on the Zoom, I just like my heart glows because. Oh, thank you. You have such an aura and a kindness and a generosity of spirit. Um, I remember being terrified meeting you in the year 2000 when I went to the Sydney Olympics. Mm -hmm. You were the big star. You're this super famous guy. And I'm a peon. And I thought, he'll have zero time for me. And honest to God, you treated me like I was your best pal. And I will never forget the magnanimous... um, you know, way that you conducted yourself to someone who was so novice. Um, and it just, it gave me a, a blueprint for how to behave uh, going forward as I met new people in the business, which is perfect for this, right? Because this is a mentoring go. session. But um, for those youngins, uh, super duper young on the on the Zoom, I'm going to give you a quick, and this is a super quick precis of Bob's career, because it would take more than an hour just to do the highlights. So Bob literally hasn't got the shelf space for all of just the Emmys that he has received. Uh, 29. Have you received more since that was printed? Because it uh, does. No, take no, okay. no, I, I haven't. I haven't gotten to the round number of 30. If I hit 30, maybe I should just walk away. Maybe that's the mic drop. <laughs> Keep it going. So 29 Emmys. And that doesn't even count all the other ones. And I made up the, the term. You're a snee. Um, it's the only person to have won Emmys in sports news and entertainment. So snee. I, Sounds awful, but it's really quite wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Bob is a host. He's a writer. He's a reporter. He's an interviewer. He does play-by-play. He does news. He does entertainment. He is the whole package. No fewer than eight times, Bob has been named by his peers um, as the National Sportscaster of the Year. And yes, that is a record. Uh, you've covered 12 Olympiads, seven mm-hmm. Super Bowls, seven World Series, and 10 NBA Finals. Have those numbers ticked up since I printed this? No. Okay, just checking. Uh, Because they do. They just tend to tick up with Bob Costas. Um, Bob hosted Baseball Game of the Week in the 80s. He hosted Later with Bob Costas in the 90s. Way too many programs on HBO to even uh, be able to begin the list. Um, But he currently divides his network time between MLBN, TBS, and CNN. And you spend a great deal of your time at HBO shooting the Emmy-nominated Back on the Record with Bob Costas. You're from Queens, New York. You went to Syracuse University, majoring in communications. You started your career at WSYR-TV and radio in 1973 while studying at Syracuse, before then joining KMOX Radio in St. Louis, which is your hometown, right? St. Louis is your hometown? No, actually, I was born and raised on Long Island and went to St. Louis right out of college at Syracuse. So I think of it as my adopted hometown. My kids were born and raised there, and I lived there for like 35 years, but technically not my original hometown. 
not the original. It's like yeah, it's like uh, not my Winnipeg. I sort of feel like New York is my my adopted hometown, yeah. but uh, born and raised in Winnipeg. All right, and then uh, I should also mention that in 2000, Bob became a New York Times bestselling author as well with his book Fair Ball, a fan's case for baseball. I told you this was just the highlights, and it takes a long time to read about you. You're amazing, Bob. Off the top, with such a storied career and so many successes under your belt. Is there one thing that stands out to you as sort of the mantra, the guiding principle, the thing that got you to be, you know, such a titan? Well, you have to have at least a little bit of talent, but then you also have to have the opportunities and maybe the self-confidence, which is different than conceit or cockiness, but enough self-confidence to say when you're starting out and unproven. And somebody says to you, Brian Dumble's going to the Today Show, and we think you should host all the stuff that he hosted for NBC Sports. And you tell them, I never did any studio stuff. I did radio stuff in St. Louis, and I've done TV play-by-play for you, but I've never seen a teleprompter in my life. And in fact, the first few years I did it, I didn't use a teleprompter. I just had lived everything and had a few cards with bullet points on it. So I guess I had, I was either stupid enough or self-confident enough to say, well, I'll sink or swim. Now, if I'd screwed it up back in 1983, then, you know, you would never have heard of me. I'd be back in Syracuse doing the weekend sports or something or bowling for dollars. So at least I had that going for me, enough either self-confidence or foolishness to think that I could dive right in and do it. And beyond that, preparation. And I'm sure you feel the same way. Um, Vin Scully, the late, great voice of baseball, Dodger announcer forever, was fond of quoting the great actor, Laurence Olivier, that in order to do it, you have to have the humility to prepare and then the confidence to bring it off. So no matter what I have done, I've tried to be as well prepared as I possibly can. And that's a huge load because sometimes over-preparing can bust your confidence. You can all of a sudden Mm -hmm. panic that there's just too much to possibly remember. Um, And there's a fine line, there's a magic metric. Did you ever sort of... Did you ever find yourself all of a sudden having studied so much you can't remember one thing? You know, you hit on a very important point. The first Olympics for which I was the primetime host, I was the late night host in 1988 and Brian Gumble was the primetime host. And then I became the host for the next 11 in primetime. And in 1992, I'm thinking, well, I'm walking in the footsteps of Jim McKay uh, and others, and I better know everything. And I'm sitting there literally trying to memorize every pole vaulter from Peru and every swimmer from Timbuktu. And it occurred to me eventually, wait a minute, the host of the Olympics needs to be a very good generalist. He or she needs to know the history of the Olympics, certainly the history and the background of the host city and the host nation, and the two dozen or so stories and people who are likely to be featured in prime time. And then you have to have the facility to be able to take a briefing. So if something comes out of the blue, as it sometimes does, you have a great group of researchers. They give you the information. You have to be able to digest that and then turn it into some kind of narrative quickly. But you don't have to learn everything in the encyclopedia. And now I'll confess something. When I broadcast last October's uh, division series between the Yankees and the Guardians, you would think with all the background that I have, and I long since got past the point where I was nervous for anything, be it an Olympics or a Super Bowl or whatever, excited, yes, but not nervous. But apparently I did my usual level of preparation uh, for this series, but unloaded too much of it in the first game. And so it took me out of my natural rhythm and pace 
Because it isn't just what you know, it's how you present it. Does the rhythm work? Does the pace work? And I should have said to myself, you got at least three games here, maybe five, and it turned out to go the limit. It was a best of five series. You don't have to unload all of this on the first night. So, but maybe sub- subliminally, even after nearly 50 years in the business, I tried a little too hard that night. I'm so glad you said that um, because of all the people who have gathered on this Zoom, when I first started Rising Tide, I thought it was going to be a whole bunch of young people all looking to mm-hmm. get their start and, and look to the Titans. And what I have discovered, and folks, please put your cameras on because I love, love seeing you all. I feel like we're in a room together. What I've discovered is that it's everybody. It's from all walks of, I've been in this business, I'm coming up on 35 years and I learn something every single one of these sessions. And so, and I actually just noticed that one of our big bosses, Sean Compton is on the Zoom. He's an executive. He's at the top of the game. Oh, I know Sean. Very well. Do you know Sean? Oh yeah, Yeah? very well. Sean, give a wave. I think he had his camera off before, but... um, but, you know, and what you just said, I think, resonates with people, not just on air. Producing also is an art of being able to synthesize so that the host yeah. can do what you just said. Be a generalist and parse it out and make sure that the storytelling is natural rather than, you know, a staccato lecture. So yeah. this is the, that's the kind of advice that is great, I think, for the, the, the anchors and the reporters and the hosts on the Zoom and the producers and even the executives who are looking for that kind of producing art. Yeah, and you have to know what the platform is, PBS or NPR or some sort of long form thing on the Internet. There's a lot of junk on the Internet, but also someone could publish a novel on the Internet or certainly go present a treatise on an important subject with all kinds of nuance and detail. But you have to know if Brian Gumble back in the day Uh, is on the Today Show, and he's got five minutes to interview somebody. That's different than me on later having 22 minutes, you know, half an hour minus the commercials, 22 minutes. And maybe if it's interesting enough, being able to say to Paul McCartney or Mario Cuomo, can you come back the next night and make it a double? So you, you have to know what the parameters are. Baseball, for example, is different than hockey or basketball, which are continuous action sports. It's very hard to get an anecdote in. Maybe when the guy goes to the foul line, but the nature of baseball, it it has a different pace and it has to be to some extent anecdotal and references to history. The question is, you know, do you get it in the right proportion? Can I ask you something? Back in the 2000s, early 2000s, I read Walter Cronkite's um, memoir and he has Uh this, he has this crazy story about being a radio uh, announcer. He was doing play-by-play on a game and the power went out or something happened mm-hmm. where he lost the signal. Do you know this story of his? Yes, I read. Yep, yep. <laughs> so you tell me if I get it wrong. I can do the Reader's Digest version. But he lost the actual signal. And so his mind was, oh my God, don't let the broadcast fail. Make it up. So he made up like two or three minutes or so of an entire right. game. Signal yep. came back and he kept carrying it on. And, you know, he he told the story in such an affable way. I loved it. But I wonder if you've ever had sort of that struggle with, do you do you stay true to the, to the facts of the story, especially when you're young, or do you just try to keep the TV going? I can't think of anything that's exactly a parallel to that. Ronald Reagan used to tell a story long before he got into politics and even before he was an actor. He was at WHO in Des Moines, and they recreated Chicago Cubs games, which was the closest major league franchise to Des Moines. And you, the way you did that in a studio was there was a ticker tape, and it would say ball one, strike two, ground ball to shortstop, and you had little primitive sound effects. You'd take a piece of 
a stick and hit it against a piece of wood. And that was the crack of the bat. And they had crowd sound. And maybe if they got really creative, someone's going hot dogs, peanuts, whatever. So now the similar thing happens. The telegraph breaks down. And Reagan, like Cronkite, was smart enough to know you can fill, but you can't change the score. You can't have somebody hit a home run so that when you come back, the score is different than it actually is. But you could have them hit 10 foul balls. You could have previously described it as a beautiful sunny day. Oh, wait a minute. All of a sudden, a thunderstorm, because that would have delayed the game. You can have the pitcher walk around the mound. Somebody could get hurt. The game is delayed. You have to be as creative as possible. And back then, with radio, the theater of the imagination, and who's going to check on you? There's no internet. There's no social media. There's no video. There's no nothing. You could get away with a lot more than you can get away with now. You know what's so interesting is that um, Cronkite said in that same memoir that he thought that today's journalists were far, far uh, more skilled and better um, in the craft than than those of his era, because we've all been forced to do so much more. Um, there was mm-hmm. no lunch hour or a you know trip down to the bar, you know, down on 30 Rock. Um, yeah. th- th- there's just so much more that that had to be produced. Um, and, and yet we take it on the chin a lot more than than his era did. Well, that's because of social media. And back then there might have been one or two television critics out there somewhere. And now there are television critics, including sports TV, on mainstream newspapers and magazines. And they're all over the Internet. And social media can be terrible. It can be stupid and toxically uh, angry and, and whatnot. So you can't take that to heart. Also, the technology was so different. Um, If something happened in Rome, they'd have to fly the videotape or the film in more likelihood across the Atlantic to get it to New York in time for the next night. So Walter Cronkite at seven o'clock, if he did the 630 News and ended by saying, that's the way it is on this date, whatever, he could go down to the bar with his cronies and rub elbows and whatnot, because if there was breaking news, where was he going to go? Now, there was breaking news, for example, famously, And those younger people who haven't seen it, it's easy to find on YouTube or you can go to the library or whatever, the Museum of Broadcasting and and look at it. Uh, CBS is in the middle of soap operas on November 22nd, 1963, uh, at around one o'clock Eastern time. And Cronkite, in his shirt sleeves, uh, breaks in. President Kennedy has been shot. At that point, they don't know whether he's dead or alive. Shortly thereafter, Cronkite has to relay that message and television stayed on there wasn't any any entertainment programming there were nfl games played on sunday they weren't shown and you only had maybe five tv stations then three the three networks and maybe you had uh, a pbs station and an independent station in your city and that was it and the three networks went wall to wall from that moment on friday until the end of the day on monday through his funeral with nothing but that most people watching in black and white and a lot of television historians say that that is the day, that's the time you can pinpoint that television journalism actually came of age. But Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow and all of his colleagues, they had trained in a different era. They predate World War II. Um, They didn't have all the bells and whistles, but they had a dedication to truth and to accuracy and to fairness that too often is trampled on today. Yeah, And, and boy, the evolution just grew exponentially. I mean, even today, I feel like mm-hmm. we're trying to catch up with the, you know, bloggers and, and, um, and, and, you know, viral videos on TikTok. It's just, yeah. we, we just were sort of overstimulated and, and trying to 
maintain a, a steady, sober product, but at the same time, not be left behind. And that's a, that's a tricky wicket, you know, to, to try to navigate. This one is from Walter Durst from Columbia, South Carolina. Walter mm -hmm. asks, when you would interview a legend like Ali, Muhammad Ali, how'd you keep your cool? How'd you keep your composure and not be overwhelmed by the yeah. fame? Well, you hope by then, by that time, that you've achieved a certain level of professionalism. But Walter has maybe inadvertently hit on something here. When I interviewed the people who were who made an impression on me when I was a kid, that was very different. So if I interviewed Muhammad Ali or Ted Williams or Mickey Mantle or Willie Mays, Willie Mays right there, Mickey Mantle right there. This is my home studio, folks where I do baseball stuff from. But anyway, Studio 24-7, get it? I'm available 24-7. But please, I hope they don't hit me up at three o'clock in the morning. But <clears throat> it went, when I interviewed the people that were sports heroes or when I interviewed Paul McCartney back in 1991, I'm thinking of sitting on the floor in the living room watching the Beatles make their American debut on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964. That was very different than interviewing Michael Jordan or LeBron James, or Tom Brady. Did I respect their greatness? Yes. Do I have a sense of history? Yes. But I'm older than they are. You know, <laughs> they're, they're my contemporaries or younger. And that has a very different effect on you than you're saying, oh my gosh, this is Muhammad Ali. I remember when he beat Sonny Liston. I was 11 years old, you know? Uh, but still, professionalism should carry you through. Did, oh. was, there, was there a time though early on when you did sort of because <laughs> they were so like their their stars glowed so bright? Maybe not falling all over myself, but I I could feel I could feel the butterflies. And luckily for me, maybe because you know I'm 25 then and I looked like I was 15, they took pity on me. I never had a bad experience. You know all those all the legends when I went to St. Louis and I met Stan Musial and later met Joe De all all of them. They were all nice to me. Who knows why? Maybe they're just nice guys, basically. But they, I never had a bad experience in that respect. Well, maybe it's because you give off an aura. I'm going to read something from Stephanie Cook, who's in the uh, chat room right now. Huh? And she says, uh, just something to share about Bob. One of my first jobs in TV was um, in... Uh, as a PA at CNN in the year 2000, Bob came in as a guest and he took the time to shake hands and ask every person's name involved in the production and in the studio and repeat their names back to them, thanking them. 23 years later as an EP, I still do this. And I thank Bob for the humbleness and grace and the lesson in dealing with all of us as professionals. I don't say that just to make you all, you know, red faced and embarrassed, but um, because that is a massive, massive art in this business, oh. not only the grace among the employees, but the grace among guests. First of all, Stephanie, thank you very much. You made my day. Uh, and then I'll fall back on a cliche. It doesn't take much more effort to be nice than to be a jerk. So you might as well be nice. <laughs> it pays dividends. It definitely does. Okay. This one's from Dan Speller. I hope I mm -hmm. pronounced Dan's uh, name right. S-P-E-H-L-E-R, Speller from Indianapolis. And Dan asks, it's a, it's a simple question, and I love it. What was your biggest career mistake, and what did you learn from it? I don't know if it was a mistake, but it's a regret. I left the later program, which I did from 1988 to 94. I left it because there was too much on my plate. My kids were young. They were seven and four at that time. And I was commuting between St. Louis and New York. And I was doing all the sports stuff, too. And at that time, NBC had a wealth 
of sports riches. They had Major League Baseball. They had the Olympics. They had the NBA on NBC in the Jordan era. They still had the NFL. Uh, and I was doing these shows, and it took a lot of preparation to do the shows as well as I hoped to do them. Uh, we would take like five shows on Monday. I'd fly in on the weekend. If I was doing studio stuff, I'd fly in Friday or Saturday to New York. We'd rattle off all the weekend stuff. And then I would take five later shows on Monday and catch a late flight, the last flight from New York back to St. Louis. And I just thought something has to come off the plate. And I decided it would be later because the Olympics were looming again and NBC had just reacquired baseball. And it may have been later, may have been one of the two or three best things I ever did. And I still hear about it because that has a new life now on YouTube. And people will say to me, hey, I saw you with Dennis Hopper. My first thought when I heard that was, what was it, a seance? Dennis Hopper died a few years ago. But <laughs> all that stuff is out there. The Paul McCartney interview and all the rest of that stuff. And people seem to appreciate it. So, you know, I couldn't still be doing it, but I did it for six years. I probably could have done it for 10 or 12. So that's a regret. Well, but you've got the new, the platform now. Um, do you feel do you feel like the platform now on HBO is similar? Well, the reality is that at HBO, we fell victim to uh, the massive cost cutting going on at uh, Time Warner Discovery. Uh, we did two years. That was my contract. Uh, and it was, as you said, Emmy nominated. It was a good show. We, we did what we set out to do. But part of the cost cutting, it was not renewed. Uh, so I, not, I think you're really one of the best terrible. interviewers out there because yeah. you, you interview as, a, as such a knowledgeable friend. And I just love that style. I think that's another piece of advice for everybody, it, it, producers, anchors, reporters alike, is that if you come across trying to be too smart, it's kind of off-putting. But if you're um, genuinely curious and you have a wealth of knowledge, it's just such a nice way for people to learn along with you about the guest. You know what I sometimes found? Now, there are exceptions where you've got to do almost a prosecutorial interview. That happened when... I had the spontaneous interview with Jerry Sandusky, who was uh, accused of abusing children at Penn State. There, there's no softballing in a situation like that. And sometimes you're interviewing a commissioner or, or whatever it might be of a league, and you want to be polite, but you also want to be direct. But if you're talking about more of a background interview, a profile interview, what I found often, whether it was on the pieces I did for the NBC News magazines, Dateline is different now, it's mostly about crimes, but then it used to be... Uh, a broader kind of canvas. Um, when I did those interviews, what often happened was the subject would realize after a while you have a reputation and they come to it with a certain appreciation or understanding of who you are. But at the beginning, they may have come in thinking this is going to be another rote interview and I can go on autopilot. And they realized after a while, I had done my homework, my staff had done their homework. And very often what happens when you have a long form interview and you've gained someone's trust, the best stuff comes toward the end and you didn't pry it from someone. They just gave it up because they feel comfortable. And it's like, I'll just give it up. Um, I know our time is short. Should I tell an anecdote yes, about that? Tell. Anthony Quinn, fabled actor, younger people may not know who he was, but Requiem for a Heavyweight and uh, Zorba the Greek and on and on. I mean, he had a Viva Zapata. He had an incredible career and he was an impressive man. And I asked him where he got the, uh, the impulse from for a scene from Zorba the Greek where he says, when my son Dimitri died at the funeral, um, everyone wept and instead I got up and danced. And the boy was four years old in the movie. 
And I said, where'd you get that from? And he folded his arms across his chest. He was probably 75 years old at that point. And he had a head big enough to go on Mount Rushmore, actual size, and a granite <laughs> chin. And he said, well, you've been very nice. And you seem to want to know a lot about me. So I will tell you, but I've never spoken about this before. His son, about the age of Dimitri in the movie, in the late 1930s, drowned in W.C. Fields, the famous comedian's swimming pool in Hollywood. And so he lost his son. And he said, I created an entire life for him. He's still alive. He's an architect in San Francisco. And you hear these, these hardened, if not hardened, certainly experienced cameramen, stage manager. They're, they're trying to suppress tears. They're, you know, it's just so deeply moving because it was genuine. It wasn't something where like, let me see if we can set this up. And then we see if we can get a sound bite and we'll stick it on the internet somewhere. Or it'll wind up on entertainment tonight in a truncated form. This was organic. And it didn't happen because of anything brilliant that I did. It happened because I gained his trust. And in the end, he told me a story I couldn't possibly have known about. I don't even know how I'd react to that. I, I lucked out. You know, yeah. I, was, I was starting to choke up myself. It was so moving and it was so genuine. John Benet Ramsey's dad uh, said to me that he can't picture John Benet past six that she's frozen mm -hmm. in time and i i think i had imagined for him that that she would progress in some imaginary way yeah. for him and i was astounded by his answer that he's like me there's there's no other image of john benet for him except those pictures that you yeah. know that we all saw it's hard to, it's hard to fathom our bodies come in different shapes and sizes so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too that's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, Christopher from Atlanta has a question, and it's the same as um, as Brett Piper's as well, who's in the chat. So I'm going to read it. It's who were your mentors when you were starting out? What advice did they give you? What was the best advice you ever got? What was the worst piece? And any advice that seemed bad at the time that turned out to be good? And Brett's question is similar. It's uh, who was your best mentor and what did you learn from them? Well, I learned from people indirectly that I admired and followed. Uh, I liked the people who had some command of language and could turn a phrase, either because they were good writers or better yet, spontaneously in the moment, like Jack Whitaker in the aftermath of a great horse race or a golf match or Vin Scully. Uh, in the middle of Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's record or Sandy Koufax throwing a perfect game. And he creates an essay off the top of his head, something you couldn't improve upon if you had 24 hours to write it. You couldn't change a comma. So I admired those people and I never tried to copy them directly, but I took inspiration from what they did and then tried to apply it to my own style and my own experience and who I am as a person. Uh, when I started out, one of my mentors 
was Marty Glickman, who was the legendary voice of the New York Knicks and the New York Giants on the radio, and later actually became an announcer coach at NBC Sports. And he had gone to Syracuse. And part of the reason I went to Syracuse was that he and Marv Albert, who was his protege, had gone to Syracuse. When I heard about that, that was good enough for me. And now Syracuse's sportscaster, you, I can't keep track of all the sportscasters that have come out of there. And Marty told me early on, look, you're young and you look younger. Do you ever hear a wise old person speak really fast? Slow down. I know you know a lot, but you can't pour it out all at once. Slow down. It'll make you, it'll offset your baby face or whatever it was he was talking about. That, that, was, that was very good advice. The advice I still get sometimes is ignore catcalls from the balcony, in effect. And especially, you know, in a social media world, you could ace it on your own terms and somebody's going to hate it and they're going to hate you. And that's just the way it goes. Nobody scores 100% in this world anymore. And you got to put it behind you. And I always feel like if it's a legitimate criticism, I want to listen to it. If it's stupid or inaccurate or or a lie, I want to refute it. But that's totally, that's like playing whack-a-mole. It's totally futile and it costs you sleep. So I'm when still trying you, to ingest that. When did you, I was going to say, when did you uh, really sort of ingest that completely? Because I still, you, you can't avoid it. If you if you throw up a post somewhere, you're going to see right. something that's just vitriolic and, you know, um, it cuts to the core. I, I don't know quite how I'm to do it. still working on it, Ashley. Yeah, me too. Okay, yeah. good. I'm glad that, <laughs> right? Because you can't avoid it. There, no, there's you can't, you can't avoid it. You got to make your peace with it. Yeah, I hear you. Um, okay, so. I have this great comment and it says that, uh, that news nation should, uh, offer you to, you know, produce the, the later show on, on news nation. So we're going to have a conversation off camera about that. How about that? I've had that conversation with Sean Compton in the past, so we oh. can always renew the conversation. I'm going to renew it right now because he's on. <laughs> I know. Okay. Then I love this one. Christine from New York says you're at a point in your career, a career filled with highlights. What are the most special moments that stand out for you? Uh, I will be concise on this. If I, I know you pick, have to go. Yeah, if I had to pick one from later, it would be Paul McCartney. We did mm. three shows with Paul McCartney. And at that time, he hadn't done anything on American television in about 10 years. And there are people, it's very kind when they say it, who feel that it's kind of the definitive McCartney interview. So uh, I feel good about that. In sports, I always cite three things. Michael Jordan's last shot as a Chicago Bull. Uh, I was calling that for NBC. It won the championship. It turned a one-point deficit into a one-point victory. It couldn't possibly be more classic and dramatic. And I think the way NBC covered it uh, holds up. Uh, the test of time is, is always important. And I, I think we, we get a more than passing grade for that. Uh, Muhammad Ali lighting the torch um, at the Olympics in Atlanta in 1996. It was such a moving and poignant moment and such a surprise. Dick Ebersol, who ran NBC Sports, and you know Dick because you work with us in 2000 in Sydney, uh, Dick said, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but you'll know as soon as you see him or her. And it turned out that they rehearsed it one time at three o'clock in the morning and only a dozen people on the planet maybe knew who it was. And Dick said, I want your reaction to be as spontaneous as the people in the stadium. And the way they staged it, he literally stepped out of the shadows. And Janet Evans, the great Olympic swimmer, climbed up the steps and handed him the torch. And it was 20 years before he died, but he was even then trembling from Parkinson's. And here was something that was so poignant because here was once the most beautiful 
of athletes and the most voluble and so entertaining. And even then his speech was reduced and this once beautiful and nimble figure was shaking and yet he was willing to present himself to the world that way. And even people by then that had a difficulty with him for political reasons, I think they had to come around because in the big picture, how could you not admire and respect him? And it was a moment kind of a reconciliation with him and the public uh, in a certain sense. And he actually said to us a couple of days after, because he stayed around the Olympics, he said, I feel like I was born again. And he didn't mean that in a religious sense, but he, he felt like it was a different chapter in his life. And by the, by the end of the Olympics, by the last day, we had put together, I didn't have much to do with it, but we had put together a, uh, uh, an hour-long documentary about that experience called Twice Born, the Cassius Clay Ali, the magnetic, dynamic, and sometimes controversial figure, and now this almost universally beloved Muhammad Ali at a different stage of his life. So I'm proud to have been associated with that. Oh, man. this I mean, I could listen to your stories for hours. I know you have an appointment that you've got to run, but man, oh, man, it's good to see you. And I and thank you for this. It's it's right in keeping with who you are, helping others, and you know, imparting the wisdom that you've gained over these decades, so that others can continue to hone best practices in this much maligned industry. Bob Costas, I love you. I can't wait to right. see you again in person. Right. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Ashley. I wish I wish I could. I see something from Sarah says thank you, Bob. Thank you, Jake says thank you. Thank yeah. you all. Thank you, Sean Compton, who was somewhere out there in the ether and maybe we'll do this again because i enjoyed it i wish i could go for an hour but i can't thank you jennifer thank you jonathan thank you dan okay oh my heart okay i am calling you for another one of these thanks bob be well don't forget you can watch me every night on news nation at 10 p.m eastern 9 central and 7 p.m on the west coast Don't know where to watch us? Just go to www.joinnn.com. Enter your zip code and the channel finder will show you where you can find us on your broadcast dial. But don't forget, we're also on all the streamers, Hulu, Roku, YouTube TV. This is Ashley Banfield and thanks so much for joining me for this edition of Rising Tide. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.